bipolar disorder is not what it used to be. And today, we'll bring you updates on lithium from the 2023 International Bipolar Conference. Welcome to the Carlite Psychiatry Podcast, giving psychiatry honest since 2003. I'm Chris Aiken, the Editor-in-Chief of the Carlite Psychiatry Report. And I'm Kelly Newsom, a psychiatric NP and a dedicated reader of every issue. We noticed a lot more chatter about lithium at the 2023 Bipolar Conference than we did at past conferences. Patients spoke of it as life-changing, and researchers were recommending it first line. One even said that the main advantage of the antipsychotics was that they reminded us all how well-comparatively well-tolerated lithium is. There's a reason for this. More studies have come out in the past few years showing superior benefits with lithium. Studies in children encourage the FDA to lower the age cutoff for their approval from 12 to 7. On the medical side, studies suggest that lithium treats and prevents COVID and other viral illnesses. It has anti-aging effects at the level of the DNA and prevents dementia, stroke, cancer, and neurological illnesses. Lithium has cardiac risks, mainly arrhythmias, but it also promotes cardiac remodeling after an injury to the heart. And in 2023, the International Society for Bipolar Disorders put out a position paper that recommended lithium first line in the early course of bipolar disorder. Today, you'll learn that lithium goes beyond symptom management to improve functioning, but its benefits take a few months to kick in. It's better tolerated than most mood stabilizers in the ways that patients care about. But despite all this good news, rates of lithium prescriptions are on the decline. And that's where we need this practice upgrade for 2023. Use more lithium. But first, a preview of the CME quiz and find a link to the full two-question test in the show notes. One, which of these is a sign of a lithium responder? A, prominent depressive episodes. B, clear separation of manic and depressive symptoms. C, comorbid alcohol use disorder. D, early onset of bipolar disorder before age 12. The Bipolar Conference opened with an update on lithium by Michael Bauer and Michael Gitlin, two leading lights in bipolar disorder who recently published a textbook on lithium. The book is published by Springer, which means that you'll probably have free access to it through the Springer online collection if you belong to an academic medical library. We're going to interview Michael Gitlin later this year for a full rundown on how to use lithium, but we'll share today some of the most useful lithium updates, starting with why use it in the first place. Nasir Gami has called lithium the closest thing to a cure in bipolar disorder because it works better than other mood stabilizers at preventing relapse, and it addresses the actual underlying pathophysiology of the disease. For example, lithium stabilizes the biological clock, altering the expression of circadian rhythm genes. It increases mitochondrial reserve capacity, which is implicated in bipolar, 
Lithium is neuroprotective, preventing many of the negative effects on brain structure that we see during a chronic illness like bipolar. One study that drove this point home for me is from Nature 2016. It's called Differential Response to Lithium in Hyperexcitable Neurons from Patients with Bipolar Disorder. The researchers literally took brain cells that were derived from the brains of the hippocampus of patients with bipolar disorder. This technology has been making psychiatric headlines for the past year. It's called organoids, or pluripotent stem cell research. True to life, they found that these cells had hyperexcitable energy stores in people with bipolar, specifically in the mitochondria where energy is stored, and that lithium reversed this hyperexcitability. Taken together, all this research on the expression of circadian rhythm genes down to the pluripotent stem cells suggests that if you give lithium early, it might prevent the illness from getting out of hand, perhaps even at a biological level. And that is what the studies have found. This year, the International Society for Bipolar Disorders put out guidelines on what to do in the early course of bipolar and they recommended lithium first line. They concluded that lithium worked better than anticonvulsants at preventing new episodes and better than antipsychotics at improving overall functioning. Here's a sentence from the paper that really struck me. Quote, In the early course of bipolar disorder, adherence to antipsychotic agents was associated with worse psychosocial functioning over the first one or two years of follow-up when compared to those who were not compliant with antipsychotic treatment and to those on lithium. In other words, lithium improved psychosocial functioning over the long term, while antipsychotics seemed to make functioning worse, even worse than those who weren't compliant with the med. That's concerning. This difference in functioning was noted long ago in a 1979 paper by Fred Goodwin. Goodwin concluded that antipsychotics worked faster to bring down symptoms, but lithium worked better to improve functioning. Dr. Gitlin agreed. He even said that if you read the early papers of antipsychotics in bipolar disorder from the 1960s and 70s and just substituted the word chlorpromazine, with the word olanzapine, that you'd find the papers today are nearly identical to those from yesteryear. Gitlin warned us that antipsychotics sometimes look more effective than lithium in studies of mania because of their speed of onset and ability to bring down agitation and insomnia, symptoms that really make a big difference on rating scales like the YMRS but that if we look beyond symptom rating scales, we see better results across the board with lithium long-term. One in three people with bipolar disorder have a full recovery on lithium. Another 30% get significantly better, and some simply don't respond. You never know who will be a good responder, so it's worth a try. Few other treatments offer the promise of a long-term recovery. And here's a pearl. 
Dr. Gitlin emphasized that lithium is a slow actor. So unless you were using it for acute mania, wait at least four months to judge the results of that trial and get the level right. 0.6 to 0.8 for depression and 0.8 to 1.1 for mania. If your patient is over age 60, you might need to aim lower, about 30% lower. But children require the same levels as adults. And lithium is FDA approved down to age seven now. Seven. How do you remember that? Because lithium was the lead ingredient in the early soft drink 7-Up. So it's approved for ages seven and up. Or if you are a basic chemist, you'll know that lithium's molecular weight is seven. There are signs that suggest a patient will respond well. Lithium responders are the ones with classic textbook bipolar. Their manias or hypomanias are pure and euphoric. Maybe with some irritability, but not a lot of mixed states. They don't have many comorbidities or substance use disorders. And they have a pretty normal personality when they aren't in a mood episode. Their episodes follow the nature law of what comes up must come down, with depressions that follow the manias or hypomanias. They may be bipolar 1 or 2, but their mood episodes are cleanly separated and resemble the textbook description in their symptoms. They are more likely to have a family member with bipolar, and their age of onset is also classic for the illness, in the late teens, age 15 to 20. And if they have a family member who responded to lithium, there's a good chance they will too. If you do decide to try lithium, start low and raise slowly, unless the patient needs urgent treatment. I usually start at 300 milligrams every night for five to seven days, and I raise it every five to seven days from there. But I might start at 150 milligrams if the patient is nervous about lithium, as many patients are. Lithium is one of the best tolerated mood stabilizers when it comes to problems that patients care about. Weight gain, fatigue, cognition, In my experience, about 1 in 10 patients cannot tolerate it, usually due to emotional flattening. At the conference, Dr. Vieta presented a new meta-analysis with a surprising result. Lithium had no weight gain compared to placebo. That result is going to surprise a lot of patients. Indeed, many do report the opposite on lithium, especially over the long term. But I also recall a meta-analysis from 10 years ago that actually found weight loss on lithium. This one had lumped together all the short-term studies. Tell your patients that they are in control of this problem, and it is much less of a problem than it is on other options. Lithium is going to make them thirsty, so tell them to drink water, not caloric beverages, and not diet sodas, which cause weight gain in indirect ways. My personal belief is that patients are more prone to a nocebo effect on lithium than they are with most other meds that are heavily advertised or have been heavily advertised on TV. In other words, they have a psychological fear of lithium, and that causes their body to amplify any side effects they experience on it. So they need a lot of education before starting lithium. I have a slideshow on my website, and I usually show them a few of the slides. You'll find it at moodtreatmentcenter.com forward slash Lithium slides, one word. If their fear is palpable, like Kelly, I'll start with 150 milligrams and make clear that the goal is just to tolerate it, that it's not going to make them feel better at that dose. After a few weeks on 150 milligrams, these patients often come back with a sense of accomplishment. They're proud that they were able to tolerate this heavy duty med. They took lithium. 
and from there we can raise it up. I'll also start with the controlled release formulation of lithium because most side effects are lower with that one, including tremor, but particularly nausea, which is the most common reason people reject lithium at first. Dr. Gitlin agreed, though he often changes to the instant release lithium once the patient has been on it for a few months. At that point, they've adjusted to the med, or at least their stomach has, and there's little chance of nausea. And he is more concerned at that point with the kidneys. Now, he cited evidence that the instant release might be less damaging to the kidneys, but in my view, the evidence is not entirely convincing there, but there are some studies suggesting that. Dr. Gitlin and I do agree on one evidence where that evidence is clear, and this is practice changing. Lithium is safer for the kidneys when dosed all at night. He will sometimes divide it up during the day when he's starting the medication. He finds that that reduces the nausea and other side effects. But in the end, he aims for all evening dosing. Another update he shared with lithium is that we've become more aware lately of parathyroid dysfunction on it. You'll pick up on this through elevated calcium levels and Dr. Gitlin recommends checking those at least yearly and referring to an endocrinologist if you detect any problems with the parathyroid. One of the most interesting updates came from history, and it's a real blow to us Aussies who celebrate the discovery of lithium by our own John Kay. Well, it turns out a Dane beat him to it. In 1894, the Danish psychiatrist Frederick Lang published a report of successful treatment with lithium in 35 patients with recurrent depression. Lang used similar doses to what we use today, and his results were impressive. But there was one problem. His theory was wrong. Lang believed that manic depression was due to accumulation of uric acid and that lithium helped remove this chemical. Emil Kreppelin, the German psychiatrist who laid the foundations of bipolar disorder, actually read Lang's paper, but decided not to try lithium because he believed the theory was bunk, even if the results were positive. Fifty years later, in 1949, Australian John Cade picked up on the uric acid theory and brought lithium into the modern age. When I was in medical school, we were taught that Cade had the right idea for the wrong reason, but even that might be wrong. Cade's idea that uric acid causes bipolar has a long history dating back to the 1840s when doctors first discovered elevated uric acid in gouty arthritis. Gout is very painful, and it tends to affect people who already have psychiatric problems, those with alcohol use disorder. So doctors started to believe that the elevated uric acid made people more moody and irritable just because that's what they were seeing in these patients. The words gouty mania and gouty melancholia spread into popular discourse. Lithium lowers uric acid, so it was natural to explore lithium as a treatment for manic depression. Fast forward to the 2000s and we find psychiatrists have revived the uric acid theory of bipolar disorder, including prominent NIMH researchers Carlos Cerati and Husseini Manji. Uric acid is indeed elevated during mania. 
and lithium indeed lowers it. The theory led to five positive randomized controlled trials in mania with the anti-gout med allopurinol. I include allopurinol around my fifth-line treatments, and I've had some success with it in mania. Imagine if Krepelin had tried lithium instead of bromides, his treatment of choice. We'd be dating the birth of modern psychopharmacology to 1900 instead of 1950. Freud would have had a harder time capturing the public eye as patients marched out of Krepelin's asylum with this new cure. And now for the study of the day, a multi-center, double-blind, placebo-controlled trial of escitalopram in children and adolescents with generalized anxiety disorder by Jeffrey Strawn and colleagues. This was a large industry-sponsored randomized controlled trial of the SSRI escitalopram in 275 children and adolescents with generalized anxiety disorder, GAD. Here's the result. After eight weeks, escitalopram, Lexapro, reduced anxiety symptoms with a mild benefit over placebo, but there was an increased risk of suicidal thinking that rose to 9.5% on the medication versus 1.5% on the placebo. That's a risk that, unfortunately, we're used to seeing in studies of antidepressants in children and potentially anyone under age 25, that it can increase the risk of suicidal thinking. So far, we don't have evidence that antidepressants increase the risk of suicidal behavior, and that did not seem increased in this study either. We don't know why this happens. It could be akathisia, restlessness, other side effects that make people more suicidal when it hasn't yet helped their depression. It could be some kind of bipolar activation-like syndrome. We really need to figure that out, and this study does not shed light on why it happened. The big news about this study is that it prompted the FDA to lower the approval limit for escitalopram down to age 7. Previously, it was only approved for GAD in adults, although in 2009 it gained dubious approval for major depression in teens down to age 12. We say dubious because the approval was based on two trials, one positive and one negative, but unfortunately those are pretty good odds in pediatric depression, where the majority of antidepressants fail. Close to 20 failed trials so far. Only fluoxetine, Prozac, has a steady track record of success in the young, and its use in depression is FDA-approved down to age 8. SSRIs and SNRIs have more success in pediatric anxiety than they do in pediatric depression. Other agents with positive controlled trials in pediatric GAD include sertraline and venlafaxine. But prior to this escitalopram study, the only one with actual FDA approval for pediatric GAD was duloxetine, Cymbalta. Escitalopram, Lexapro, has been generic since 2012, so we're not sure why the manufacturer launched this study in 2019. It was just published last month. That manufacturer is AbbVie who gained the Lexapro patent when they bought Allergen, who earlier had bought it from Forest Pharmaceuticals, the original. 
This study brings an ironic end to some costly misdeeds made by Forrest. In 2010, the company paid $313 million in fines to the Department of Justice for illegally promoting Lexapro off-label in children and teens, exactly the population it now has FDA approval in. Every day, Dr. Aiken posts a practice-changing study on his LinkedIn and Twitter feeds at Chris Aiken, MD. Join us next time where we'll look at the role of the recently gone generic lorizodone in bipolar depression. Earn CME for this episode from the link in your show notes and get $30 off your first year subscription to the full journal with a promo code podcast. Your support helps us remain free of influence from the pharmaceutical industry and on that account, keeps us out of trouble with the DOJ. Listener.